as a PM, you want to be spending the vast majority of your time in the super high leverage stuff, the stuff that only you can do, the stuff that's not going to get done if you're not there, and the kind of unique contribution that you can bring. Welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thanks for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Scott Burleson, and joining me as always, my co-hosts Jan Vermouth and Jonathan Edwards. Today, we welcome our, better, our very special guest, Jason Knight. Jason is a 20-year veteran of B2B technology and product management with experience both in corporations and startups. He's a speaker, a writer, podcaster, coach, and mentor to product development teams but especially to product managers, as he feels this is a key role that makes good product development work. And I happen to share this view as well. And I have a lot of questions, Jason. <laughs> Jason Knight, <laughs> welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, hello to the three of you. I've never been interviewed by three people at once. So I'm hoping that you're going to be, <laughs> maybe have you got like different personas that you're going to use on me as well? Like good cop, bad cop, and yeah. worse cop or something like that. <laughs> exactly. Try to be That's civil. The, it's a, you crack the code. <laughs> I will try not to fold under questioning. <laughs> oh, uh, Jason, let's start with a common passion that you and I share. The strategic role of product management. Tell us just a bit about your path becoming a product management expert and what is it that you like about it so much? Well, I mean, I'm going to be typically humble and British and say, well, of course, I'm not an expert. <laughs> and I think that anyone that says that they are an expert is either tongue in cheek or probably, you know, thinks a little bit too much of themselves. But uh, I think for me, I mean, like you say, I've been, you know, I'm, I'm in my 40s now. I've been around for a while. I started out as a developer back in the day, a big uh, market research company, big multinational market research company with offices all over the world. Now, I was actually there for 19 years, all told. So that starts to sound like an incredibly long time. And I will say that there was a certain point, you know, maybe, I don't know, 15 years in or so, where you start to think that, you know, this is me. Like, this is me until I you know, get my gold watch and off I go off into the sunset at some point, you know, in my 60s or whatever. But there was something that happened a few years before I left, which was that the company, which was, again, a very large company, like 10,000, 15,000 people, whatever, all around the world, a hundred-year-old German market research company. Now, you can imagine that a hundred-year-old German market research company with lots of legacy and lots of history is not necessarily the most kind of lean startup type of place, because, of course, it wasn't, and I wouldn't expect it to be. Like, it's that's just the position in its journey that it got to, but... They got acquired by a big investment firm called KKR, very obviously well known, and they went through a big kind of reimagining of what the company should be. And they wanted to move away from being this traditional market research company to a digital first data and technology provider to, you know, to give insights to the, the, the industries that they served. Now, they, as part of that, brought in kind of a, a new management team, as often happens in these sorts of situations. And the CTO at the time came in, or the new CTO, and started waving around like the lean startup and started talking about all these different cool things about lean and agile and all these things that you'd think, well, they probably can't work in a big company like this, but he wanted to try. Uh, I'm not going to say whether he succeeded or failed, because, you know, that's still an ongoing journey. Everyone's still there now, and it takes a long time to transform a big company. But at the same time, like the effort was there. And the desire was there. And I started getting really interested in some of the stuff that was in these books and some of the stuff that you hear about how these other big tech companies that 
I was always aware of, but never really, you know, knew too much about how they worked. I was really, and I was also super curious as to how it differed from some of the stuff. Like I've been building products in one form or another for, for quite a few years before that, but just in a much bigger organization, you know, we were releasing digital products and customer facing products and stuff that would be put out to market. And we were trying to manage those as best we could. And there were obviously a lot of similarities between what we were doing and, you know, some of this more kind of newfangled stuff, but we certainly weren't a startup. And I started really getting interested in the craft of product management or at least the, the possibilities of the craft of product management. So that's when I started getting interested in, well, you know, maybe I'll go and find a startup. You know, I've been here a while. There's all these new cool things. Maybe I get to do them here. Maybe I don't, but actually I'll definitely get to do them somewhere else. So I then started my journey into startups and moved kind of into a company that was very kind of in a similar kind of conceptual space, working in sort of innovation space and trying to provide insights to big consumer goods companies. And then have kind of gone through a few different companies then. And obviously along the way, done lots of other stuff around uh, podcasts and newsletters and social media and all the other stuff that I've done around it. But it was kind of a weird, wiggly journey into product management. And as for why I love it, I mean, maybe we should do a longer section on that in a minute. But ultimately, <laughs> I love it because it, for me, makes incredible sense for the kind of wide array of interests that I have. You know, I started out as a developer. I was a developer for a number of years, but I was always interested in what I was developing, not just how I was developing it. I was interested in how people used it. I was interested in making sure it could scale. I never wanted to just build stuff for the sake of it. And what you start to see as you start to maybe think about this stuff a bit more deeply is, well, actually, you know, I, I the, the, a lot of the product management stuff was stuff that I was kind of doing anyway as I moved into sort of tech leadership moved into strategic roles within the company. And I started to realize that it really fit the, I mean, I'm not necessarily going to aggrandize it and say, oh yeah, well, all the skills that I have, but certainly the interests that I have and the areas that I wanted to focus on and the ability to get involved in various different parts of what makes a good product successful rather than just building it. So I absolutely love the variety, the impact you can have. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think I'd ever go back. You know, the, your reaction to the word expert is exactly what I would expect to hear from a real expert. What I mean, <laughs> no, what no, that, that, that's a trick. That's a trick. <laughs> Here, here's what I mean by that, though. The more you learn about something, I feel like the more you realize how much you still need to learn. Right. Yes. It's it's so it's like and so that's why. You know, you you felt like you were a little uncomfortable with the label, and I feel the same <laughs> way. But I think I think it's but again, I think it's honestly a mark of you your expertise, quite frankly, because you because you realize how much like product management. It's like just like you said, it was all, all these interests. And so one is you know when the user starts using the product. Well, from there you can go. What about behavioral science? How do people make decisions? And wow, I know yeah. that's just like a such a small bit. And as I learn about that, then that, that's got a whole world. And I sir, if you learn more about that, there's a whole world with, within it. And it's like it's sort of this never-ending journey. So even though even so I'm gonna say I'm even more convinced <laughs> an expert based on that answer. But anyone that isn't an expert, like my dad could say that he's not an expert in product management and and he'd be correct. Yes. So like you've got to be careful. You can't <laughs> this is not something that's gonna hold up in every line of inquiry. But I look, I agree. Like I think one of the things that 
humbles me every day. And again, yeah. not not just to sit there yeah. and try and sound humble, but it genuinely does. Like one of the things that humbles me on a daily basis is because I'm very active in the product community. Like I, obviously, I've got my own podcast. I speak to a bunch of people you know and have been doing for years on that now and some of those people are legitimately experts like people that I would call experts people that I look up to and they obviously teach me things even just through the very act of talking to them but also there are lots of sort of unsung heroes out there as well like people that I deal with on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis that even if they're not expert in the sense that oh well they've written a book or they've got a course or whatever but they're still an expert in a way like they've they've all got something they all can they can all do something that I can't do or they've done something that I haven't done. Now, obviously, everyone's got their own journey, and I'm not expecting to have done everything, but I genuinely, I mean, one of the, for me, one of the best things about going out there and getting involved in the community and obviously trying to help as best I can, but, you know, talk as best Mm -hmm. I can as well, is just understanding that there's just so many other people out there that can still teach me stuff, no matter how much I read or do or say or ask or whatever. There's always more stuff to learn uh, and yeah, that, that's a big part of it as well. It's just, you know, you could sit there and go, yeah, well, this is that whole growth mindset stuff. And yeah, sure, cool. Like, it was a good book. <laughs> and I definitely agree with the concept, but it's not just about trying to live up to some cliched, oh, yeah, I'm a growth mindset person. Not at all. But I'm genuinely curious and I want to keep learning, keep finding out, and obviously also hearing other people's stories as well. Yeah. You know, when we were just getting warming up here, we were talking about Product Camp, uh, which yes. is, um, you know, such as something that, it's sort of a self-organizing uh, thing all around the world. And where I started attending product camps here in the North Carolina area, they would, I mean, this goes back, wow, 15 years ago at this point, but, you know, they would be on a Saturday. Uh, people, if it's just all volunteers. People would get there and everybody was so excited to be there. And you have volunteers, total amateurs giving presentations, really just share. I say amateurs, they're professional, they do, but they're sharing their expertise and everybody is so eager to learn. And I remember just looking around and it's like, I felt like I'd found like my people, like from some (laughs) other, I'm from some other planet and like, I'm sort of having (laughs) weird interests and wow, all these, and this like, man, these are my people. Um, and you remind me of that same kind of that same kind of thing. And what reminds me of that is your comment about wanting this to learn from other people. It's like no matter what industry in B two B, B two C, software, technology, heavy equipment, uh, you know, startups, corporations. There's somebody that has different experiences than you. I'm really just paraphrasing what you just said, and that <laughs> there's something you can you can learn from that. But what is it about? these crazy people in this product management planet. I mean, what is it that makes, what, what, what is this common gene or what are we, there, is there something hard to define that makes sense? I mean, a little bit. I mean, I just want to touch very briefly on what you said about finding your people as well, actually, because that, like, again, if we go back to rewind sort of three years ago or so, when I first started sort of dipping my toe into the podcast water is like, I had no plan for that. Like there wasn't some master plan of like, well, yeah, yeah I'm going to do this, that and the other, and then I'm going to be this type of you know, expert or this type of influence or whatever. Like, I mean, arguably not either of those things, but like, even if I were some, one of those things, I've not planned to be that. Like it was very much an experiment to go out and find my people. Like I was working mm-hmm. in a product job for a startup. So, you know, I was in the game, but obviously one of the things that I find with product people as well, and um, I don't know if any of you feel the same is, product can be or can feel quite lonely because even when you're 
in a product company in a product team like i had a team of like five people uh, as a director of product at a company a team of five pms and you know we were talking about our problems and we were talking about the stuff that we needed to do and how we needed to be successful all the time and obviously we're also reading books and all the other stuff that pms do but we that we had no external opinions mm. or external input or feedback or anything like that yeah we had no one to tell us what was right or wrong we had no kind of basically team mentorship or anything all we had was ourselves and we were just trying to work it out on our own one of the things i craved at the time and you know frankly still crave is just that community like going mm. out there and speaking to people and finding out from people that again either they're more expert or more clever or they're just different like other people that can bring stuff to the table and i think then to go back to your current question well what the yeah what does that mean for you what types of things that these people share i think that curiosity is something that all of the best product managers share because you can't be a decent product manager if you're not curious uh, curious about what the future could hold right so mm. you can't sit there and say right i know everything and yeah. i'm just going to execute that now like i would be amazed if i mean you know you look at say someone like steve jobs you know everyone talks about what a genius he was and but he made some missteps he didn't know everything he knew a lot but he didn't know everything and it's the same for pms like no pm should be able to just sit there and say well yeah i've you know, had a think and now it's all <laughs> this and now let's go like that's and it's just then all about turning the handle and like having the perfect little pebbles come out of the machine or whatever P pms as far as i've seen when i've gone out and talked to these people and i've talked to a lot of them super curious people and also super open-minded which i guess comes with a curiosity like they're they're not just finding out but then trying to use it to reinforce their own biases they're they're, they're open-minded enough to you know, effectively change their opinions and that, that changing your opinion is important as well like the ability to respond to new input yeah. that maybe mm. disproves something that you thought before or or goes against it or some data or whatever. And you can sit there and say, well, the worst types of product manager, the ones that probably aren't succeeding very much, are just going to ignore that. And they're going to they're going to forge ahead. Now they may be being forced to be to, to forge ahead because you know of other dynamics within the organization. But either way, just forging ahead in that situation is not good. So like the best product managers, the best product people that I spoke to, super curious, super open-minded, super willing to change and kind of, yeah. but at the same time, there's this, you know, you're obviously aware of the kind of strong opinions, loosely held type, you know, mantra. Like I think that's a, a critical one for product managers. Like you can't sit there and just be led by other people's opinions either. Like you have to have an opinion of your own. You have to have a position but you have to be super flexible to be able to adapt it. So these are, I mean, I'm sure there are loads of other things that are good for product managers as well, but those are some of the types of characteristics that I think really bring product managers or, or people that want to be product managers together. And I think that they're really helpful traits. Yeah, I think we should start regarding this as a virtue. So the ability to change your, your opinion. I think that yes. we should start calling that a virtue, that you're able to change your opinion I think is an A, an ability, and to hurt you, there is stress much more. Like if you're confronted with data, then are you actually able to change your mind? Are you able to change your mind? I know. I think that's a really, that's an important point. I would, mm -hmm. I wanted to maybe also ask you, like you're coming from this more developer side kind of into product management. How has that shaped your view? Because I often experience PMs also that, that it's not always easy to, especially with engineering or developer, to, to manage that kind of relationship. So how did that inform your view? 
So one of the things that being a developer, and you know, just for full disclosure, I'm still doing a little bit of development these days on my platform that maybe we'll talk about later. But the um for me, like development, obviously I was in it for a long time. I was yeah. a developer for dozens of years. Of a reasonable quality as well. Like I'm I was never the best developer, but I was definitely not the worst. I'm a, a good, solid, you know standard issue developer that can get stuff done but what really made me stand out from being a developer wasn't my development skills which which were fine and solid but more of the product stuff that I kind of brought with it and kind of thinking around the problems and trying to come up with novel solutions for things it wasn't so much being able to just chunk code out it was yeah. the the more of the kind of the whole holistic thinking now going into full-time product roles and product leadership roles and obviously then moving on into coaching and consulting after that it's not enough. Now, you get a lot of people opining on social media and other places that, you know, whether product managers need to be technical or not. Now, I'm not going to say that product managers don't need to be technical. I would absolutely not say that. It's obviously very helpful to be able to understand and have good conversations with developers and understand how your, your tech works. But it's not enough on its own. Like, that's just part of the puzzle. Now, obviously, everyone's aware of the kind of the three circles, Venn diagram, product, business, UX. Oh, sorry, uh, UX. Uh, I can't remember now. Development, UX, and business. And then, like, the you are here in the middle. And then yeah. there's this whole idea of, like, well, I kind of almost see it as, like, there's a little laser pointer pointed at that middle. That's where you should be. And if you're not careful, you start to drift, and the, the dot will shift over over yeah. time depending on like what happens in your day-to-day -day work what's going on the kind of proclivities that you have as a for example as a former engineer you're always going to be tempted to drift back when times are hard which they often are in product okay. into that more of a developer circle because that's yeah. your area of comfort that's your area of most competence so it's easier for you to have those conversations and again when times are hard when you're under stress and or when things aren't going your way it can feel really easy to fall into that sort of tech bucket. But yeah. if you're just doing that, then you're not obviously then focusing on all the business stuff. You're not focusing on the users. You're not focusing on all of the other things that make a product successful, which means that you're basically underperforming as a product manager. And your products that you're putting out there probably aren't performing as well as they could you know, if you were maybe a little bit closer to that middle. So for me, it's always been a constant effort to not, I guess, revert to type and go back into that engineering box yeah. you know i always have great conversations with engineers or mostly i'm sure there'll be some engineers listening that remember some conversations that weren't so good but i generally have good yeah. conversations with engineers i'm super technical i understand most of how technology works for you know all of the platforms that i've ever worked on more or less and i think all of the times where i gravitated to way too close to the engineering side it was always the detriment of the overall product uh, initiative that we were working on. So it's something where, now that I'm super conscious of, I try to push against, like push against that gravity and, and pull apart. But obviously at the same time, and this is a hard kind of balance, like you don't want to push against it so much that you're not involved in it at all. So trying to get like a good balance so that you're pulling away to that middle but not pulling so far away that you actually leave the engineers to rot because, you know, then you're basically, again, yeah. you've gone too far the other way. So trying to constantly push and pull between all of the different parts of the business that make the product what it is, I think that's been my journey of, of just trying to make sure that I do that 
and that I'm not just drifting too far into one box or circle. Yeah, I really liked it. So, so it's UX, engineering, and, and kind of business. And what would you say? So are you always in a position of being uncomfortable or is that a position where you're always comfortable? Ah. Like, what's the middle? <laughs> well, you could argue. So just to call out, that's Martin Erickson's Venn diagram. I know that he likes to uh, make sure that it's correctly attributed, Martin, from Mind the Product formerly. Now, the thing I guess you could also visualize that as, and I'm just making this up as I go. So like maybe I'll try and draw this afterwards or something. But is this idea that maybe that's like uh if you've seen like the the wobble boards or whatever the kids can have like the ball with the the, the board on ah, top yeah. and you have to kind of balance in the middle and if you're not balancing then you'll fall off one way or the other and they're trying to think about okay. like whether there's some kind of analogy here like you say like whether you're always in a position of stress because you're constantly having to adjust your position to make sure that that board stays up now i'd have to think about whether that works as a an analogy but I kind of I like it, yeah. Yeah, it's like it is that idea. Now that that obviously makes product management sound like a super stressful job. But you know, we all have to call out that no matter how much we love product management, it can be incredibly stressful because you are at the center of everything. And it is at its best a super high leverage role. So like you're not just there making easy decisions all the time. Anyone can make an easy decision. You're there to make the hard decisions, yeah. make the hard trade-offs, and try and keep in sync and coordinated and organized and all of that with everyone. So it, it shouldn't be easy. If it's easy, then something's probably, you know, <laughs> something's probably on fire somewhere that you didn't notice yet. So for me, yeah, like maybe that kind of wobble board or whatever those toys are actually called analogy, it actually works quite well. Like you're always kind of constantly adjusting your balance so that you're keeping yourself upright. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think this notion of balance came up a, f a few times already, and I, I think it's a very um, interesting notion. I really liked also the, the self-awareness of... Uh, trying not to drift into your comfort zone. I think that's something that we all naturally do. And I, I think you really expressed that very nicely. Um, uh, you, you talked about, you know, balance between being flexible um, in your mindset, but also having strong opinions. You talked about the balance of, uh, you know, going back to your box and your comfort zone versus having more of this holistic view. Um, I really, I really like that. Um And I wondered actually if you could maybe, as you mentioned, uh, Martin Erickson's uh, Venn diagram, if you could mm. just explain. It's a, like a bit of a boring, typical question, but what do we? What do you mean? What is for you then the UX? I mean, I think d development is pretty clear for most people. Um, the business side, maybe more or less. And what is then? What is then the UX bit? Yeah, so I would normally not call it UX if I were to draw that diagram, which I don't normally draw because, you know, I don't want Martin to get cross with me. But the what I would normally frame it as is more users. So like as in the, the users of the software that you're building, the products that you're building or the customers, to, if it's a B2B thing and, and you, know, you have two different groups to satisfy. And it's kind of a mixture of, well, how are we actually – well, it's not even really a mixture. It's just like how are we serving the needs of the people that we're serving And are we serving it the best way that we can? And how do we know that we're doing that? So again, as a so in the development circle, I can sit there and say, well, you know, I'm, you know, or we're building software that does a thing. Like that software allows people to book hotels for dogs or whatever it is that it needs to do. And then obviously the business side of that is, well, you know, we need to make certain amounts of money and we need to get a certain amount of market share and exist in such and such a competitive space and be aware of all of that stuff. And then the UX side for me is like, well, 
who actually really needs this? Like, do people really need to book hotels for dogs? And and how often do they need to do that? And like, what's the what's the easiest way for them to do that? And and how can we how can we make their lives better? And is actually is this even the most important problem to solve, or should we do something else in in the dog space or whatever like that? So, I think for me, the UX thing, I don't really see it as just like as in literally design. I think it's more about how do the users experience our product, our mm. offering, our solution. Now, I don't know if that's how it was originally conceived, but that's certainly how I see it. And mm. I also, you know, just as a side note, I don't just see it as like development in the sense of like the software engineers. I mean, obviously, they're a big part of that, but I also see there being kind of data analysts and uh, data engineers and data scientists and people like that in that box as well. Like anyone, there could be hardware type people in there as well. It's not just the, the, the software development people. It's anyone that's involved in the actual creation of the of the tangible thing that comes out of it, yeah, be it tangible, literally, physically, or the thing that people log into or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I, I would say for me, use it, the UX side is all about how the users experience it. Yeah, that, there's. Uh, I think it's fairly similar to uh, a concept that um, Marty Kagan um, put forth in, in his writing, in his book called Inspired. He talks about this risk, which for me was like really a light bulb when I, I read it. He has these four four risks. So uh, for course, the business risk, uh, value risk, usability risk, and feasibility risk. Mm -hmm. And that the the role of the project manager was to kind of reduce these, um, these risks. And I, it reminds me a bit of that. I mean, what you were talking about. Yeah, he also has updated that, I think, since to talk about ethical risks as well, to make sure that the products, I guess, you know, probably in the aftermath of things like the Cambridge Analytica stuff and the Facebooks and all these other places that are doing weird things with data and maybe overstepping the mark. I think, yeah, Marty's got a very clear ethical compass that that I think he likes to fold into that stuff as well. I remember when I interviewed Marty on the podcast a couple, two, three years back now, he, um, it was just after Empowered came out. And one of the things I still remember kind of unscripted moment, I guess, was that how he's basically saying how he wants all of his friends that work for Facebook to leave and he actively encourages them to do so whenever he speaks to them because of the ethical <laughs> wow. concerns that he has about that company. So, yeah, I think uh, that's just an additional risk that got laid or layered in on the top. And I see ethics not just so much as just like, are you doing bad things with, people data, with, with people's data or are you doing, you know, uh, kind of shady things with regards to, uh, you know, privacy or any of the, you know, are you actively harming people? Like all of these things obviously are part of that. But I also see it as part of like, well, are we making this inclusive and accessible for people? Are we accidentally exacerbating bias you know, through data science or whatever? Or are we doing what we can to make sure that our systems are explainable and that what we're doing doesn't have any unintended effects that we could have maybe measured? So, yeah, I think it's easy to look at the ethics side and say, well, yeah, well, at least we're not like, you know, burning down forests or whatnot. But I think there's also a kind of a, a general ethics question around like how accessible and inclusive and and how many biases we can destroy of our products as well i think that's a nice addition that ethical and the, the privacy comes up but also i think about products in um equipment that things that could be dangerous yep. you know the safety things which which might even i mean you might meet some regulatory hurdle but that may not maybe that's not a high enough threshold or medical devices and anything in healthcare without going way down that rabbit hole. I think that's a nice addition to the, the thinking. And I love your, your, your um, visual uh, description of staying in the middle 
you said a laser pointer, meaning yes. when I hear that, I hear precise, I hear be wary of drifting at all. And you you describe the, the temptation of slipping in the technical role. Another one I've seen is slipping too far. Maybe it depends on your background, slipping too far into a sales role where you end yep. up you end up being help desk for your salespeople and you're out on calls and Wow, you look very productive, man. You're, and and the leaders in your company love you for it. Wow, you're giving presentations at the like, but meanwhile, you're they're they're forgetting about the future has got to come. Meanwhile, you're these engineers are like, well, I guess we're left to our own now. While Scott's off helping the salespeople, that so that's a, it's it's and I think because we you know we're to your point, just repeating what you said, you know, we drift back toward the thing we like. That's the, I just, again, just echoing your point, but I think that's the great challenge. What makes a great product manager is intentionally like the self-awareness that I'm, I'm getting, I'm really, I'm helping sales too much. I'm, I'm getting too deep into the technical details. I need, I need to pull, pull back. I think there's a really slightly tangential story to this, but kind of very related to the point you're just making around, for example, a few years back when I was still very much working on the technical side in this big firm I was obviously doing some product work but I was also doing in some strategy uh, strategy or strategic work and I was also because I'd been there for a while and had deep technical knowledge about the solutions that we were using for some of the stuff that we were using them for like it was really easy for people like relatively senior people to come to me and say oh hey we just need some help with x because right. you know such and such needs to be done and I'd be like, okay, cool. Now it wasn't sales, but like it was still the same right. sort of thing. You're being asked to do something that's probably not in your job description anymore, but at the same time, you want to be helpful and you know you can do it and you probably know how to do it better than quite a lot of other people. But what would happen was that every now and then the CTO, the one that I mentioned earlier that brought the book in and stuff like that, like I would only ever get acknowledged like in the, you know, kind of out of the normal meetings that you might have with the guy. Like I would only ever get acknowledged for kind of day-to-day -day work when it was like I'd done a favor for someone and like that person would then send like an effusive email to basically half the management team saying, oh, thanks so much, Jason, for helping getting this over the line or whatever, Like, because I've, I've just done them a favor. And then you get like a shout out from the, you know, the CTO or someone else in the leadership team. You're like, yeah, but you know, you do realize that I'm working for you like five days a week <laughs> on this other sort of strategic stuff that we're working on as well. Yeah. But I think it is really easy for people, especially people that have maybe a strong operational background and obviously very helpful people, people that as with many product managers, kind of generalists, they've got skills across a number of different parts of the spectrum. They can get involved in a lot of this stuff. And I think it's really important not to, not to push back on it, not to be unreasonable to the point of you know, where something's going to fail. And obviously in some companies, like you might you might have to play more of a role in certain areas because you, you just don't have anyone else that can do that work, especially like as the smaller the company gets, you may find yourself wearing more hats anyway. And that's mm -hmm. fine. But I do think it's important, and it's obviously not just me that thinks this, that you spend your time wisely as a PM. Like one often one pattern I often see is PMs are very much just sort of dragged into the operational day-to-day -day work of just crank, helping the teams crank stuff out. Now, you know, that's not to say that product managers shouldn't be interested in that stuff. Of course they should. Like, ultimately, you can't have products if you don't crank something out. Like, that's just a fact, like, well, most of the time anyway. But at the same time, I like to think, you know, maybe in a slightly more agile fundamentalist way that it's the team's job to crank that out. 
It's not just the PM's job to crank that out. I was talking to someone earlier about how it could be common for PMs or for teams, like when the PM doesn't say something, nothing happens. And like that shouldn't be the case. Like It's the team's responsibility to work on that stuff together. The PM is definitely there and part of it, and they should definitely be helping to guide, give context, and you know do all of the things that PMs need to do to help make successful products. But it's not all on them. And I think it's important, and this isn't my framework, uh, uh, Shreya Stoshi wrote a tweet or a LinkedIn post whatever some time ago about like this whole idea about uh, Lino, which is like leverage, uh, neutral and overhead type tasks. Now, I think that was a really good framing. Like as a PM, you want to be spending the vast majority of your time in the super high leverage stuff, the stuff that only you can do, the stuff that's not going to get done if you're not there and the kind of unique contribution that you can bring. And you've got the kind of the neutral stuff, which is like, oh yeah, kind of, you just need to get it done. But the overhead stuff, which is just like stuff that probably anyone could do, well, you need to start working out how to share that with anyone. Now back to the sales point, sure. Like sometimes sales teams are going to need some sales enablement done. If you're lucky enough to have a product marketing team or a good marketing team that can kind of help with that, then yeah, they're going to help you, help you do some of that. If you're in a smaller company, or if you don't have much of a product marketing muscle, maybe the product team is going to have to do that. And that's cool. I think it's important to help salespeople. We can't sell products if we don't have salespeople unless we go down the other route of you know, product-led growth and products that sell themselves, which I'm also a fan of, but not everyone's in that situation. So if you're working in a sales-led motion, you need to support the product, uh, the sales team. Yeah, the product team needs to support the sales team. However, if you're spending all your time, as you said, to like just, just supporting a sales team and just writing stuff up for them and going and doing demos with them and stuff like that, you've missed a bigger systemic issue, which is that there should be someone else to help do that as the company scales. Like you should have a pre-sales function. You should have a demo that people can do on their own. You should have more information and kind of capability lists and you know whatever documentation is needed to support the sale. It shouldn't always be that you, the PM, has to go out and do it and I think when PMs moan about this stuff, which they often do, they miss the fact that it is, at least in part, their responsibility to change the system so that they don't need to be doing it anymore. Mm. Well, that's a great point. I'll write that down. You know, <laughs> I'm connecting that to something you said earlier about you said it's a lonely job. And it's he, here's what occurs to me. Well, first of all, like, you know, so Jason's our product manager, so he's, you know, that can be interpreted like so call Jason. Like we got a we got a presentation to the CEO about this new product coming out. Well, call Jason. Let Jason help you give that presentation or help with the present. He knows the product. And and the product manager is gonna there's so many things they can do. The sales thing, the whatever. Um, that they're gonna be you're gonna be praised for all these different things you're helping out with. And your your boss is going to be like, Jason, you're doing a great job. You really helped out with that presentation. You helped out with this. Yep. You helped out with that. And it's almost like you have to self. It's like nobody's going to tell you, Jason, you're spending too much time with sales. Jason, you're spending. You're getting too close to the technical. Jason, you're spending too much time and you know with helping technical questions. You know, I love your point about you should take responsibility and implement a system. But I'm going to set that aside for a second. Because uh, it just occurs to me that's part of why it's so lonesome is you you have your boss is not nobody is telling you you're too far out of balance. Uh, at least you really have to have that self-awareness and figure out how to build a system, how to 
how to delegate when you should, how to, or, and also when to, when to, you know what, this is a, like a super important sale. Actually, I do need to, I do need to do this demo. So you're having to make all these judgment calls and you, there's like, you look to the left, look to the right, look in the mirror and, and you have to continually make sure keeping with your metaphor that you're at that laser point. Uh, I, I I don't know what's your reaction to that just occur. I'm just sort of reacting to what you're saying. It occurs to me. That's partly why it, I think it's a lonely, can be a lonely job. I think there's an incredible amount of self-management, but I think it's also lonely because the craft of product management is so poorly understood by mm. so many people, including yes. in companies that are probably reasonably okay financially or you know, they're performing okay. Because you, you know, frankly, you can, you don't need product managers to be a successful or halfway successful company, depending on a combination of luck and, you know, any kind of moat that you've got. And, you know, there's, there's various different reasons that you could be successful. You know, a good sales team that are selling a bit of a lemon, but they're managing to sell it or there's not too many competitors or stuff. Like I've spoken to people from companies where they're like, well, look, no one wants to work in this space. Like we're really just like the market leader. We've got, God knows how many years worth of of track record. It's a really unappetizing space. There's not that many competitors. Therefore, we're kind of just cranking it out and you're know, doing whatever. And it's like, and that company is going to probably remain sustainable for years, decades, because you know there's probably very little that product managers could do that would make that company more successful just by making it slightly better. Now, you could sit there and argue, well, actually, the product manager's job in that situation changes somewhat to say, well, how do we defend? our rear like there's going to be a point at some point probably where some technology or some other subject matter expert from that industry decides well yeah maybe i want to solve that and go up against these big boys maybe but like that's a years or longer like so that's that's hard so but they're even outside of extreme situations like that there are a lot of people out there sort of leadership teams people from other functions that don't really understand fundamentally what product management is in the way that product managers would generally understand it that doesn't make product managers right let's face it like who knows that there's a lot of contextual stuff that goes on within these companies that maybe means that some of the things that these product managers get from a book like inspired like you mentioned earlier maybe they don't work in some companies because of reason x now we should challenge reason x like is reason x actually a valid reason for that not to happen or is it just some bias or you know oversight that actually we probably could with strong will and maybe some following wind can can we make that reason go away so we can try to do more of that stuff or are we you know doomed to continue down that path well okay fine make peace with that or go and get another job i guess but the point is that the craft of product management as we understand it is very much like well we want to do a certain set of things to make sure you know we want to be a learning organization you know we want to experiment we want to release quickly we want to get value out soon we want to concentrate on the users constantly advocate for our users and then you've got like a company where the the ceo and the leadership team basically believe that the job of a product manager is to just take their demands and turn them into tickets for the engineering team now there are many companies like that yeah i like to think possibly naively that that's changing uh, because you know people were seeing more style there's more content out there that's not just aimed at product managers but aimed at other uh, parts of the company aimed at ceos and such as well but again this is going to be a multi-year change and there are still plenty of companies out there that aren't working in any way that's written in any book because who would write a book about how these companies work but that does make it lonely because you're sitting there as a pm 
especially in a smaller company where maybe everything's slightly more chaotic anyway and you're not really in a situation where you can just be super idealistic and want everything to be perfect because of course it's not it's not perfect for anyone but you're sitting there and you're you know obviously in the middle of everything you're getting you know at least given responsibility for things but maybe in certain situations blame for things because things are going wrong or whatever and people just don't understand what is your responsibility versus other people's responsibility and if you've also got people in other functions that maybe haven't worked in this type of company before maybe they've not worked in product companies before even up to and including the engineering teams who are sitting there maybe they've come from kind of it mindset backgrounds you know they're not ready to be empowered they might they might not even believe in agile like they're just you know, they're there they're technical they can develop but they're not sitting there looking at things in the same way that you are again doesn't make you right you know you need to adapt to your situation and you need to win the battle for hearts and minds but at the same time you can't sit there in the middle of all those people and all of that ambiguity and all these people that don't know what your job really is and think your job is something else and not feel a little bit lonely apart from if you've got other pms in the same boat but hey guess what they're in the same boat so they've all got the same problems as you have so I do think it could be lonely. And I think for me, the biggest benefit, and we touched on it earlier, the biggest way to get over that loneliness and try and kind of, you know, for want of a slightly dramatic sounding phrase, like to survive product is to throw yourself into the community, find like-minded people. Now there is a danger with that. The danger of that is you get in a kind of a self-reinforcing superiority loop of like, well, yeah, we're the product managers. We're cool. Everyone else is dumb. Don't believe that for a second. That's not the case. But everybody does that. So yeah, but like, <laughs> but you, but I think that it's even easier to double down on that when you're in a situation where you're saying, right, well, no one gets me apart from these people. So these are my, this is my, this is my gang, and we're clever, and no one else gets it, and they're just dumb. You, know, you try and put one half of that gang into a sales role or a CS role or a, even a, a CEO role or CFO. Try and put them in any other part of the company and see how long they last. Like. Maybe some of them will, maybe some of them won't, but like, it's not a given. So like, we all have to appreciate that everyone's job in these companies is hard, but at least for the most part, the jobs of the other functions are more broadly understood by a wider set of people. Everyone knows what CFO does and the finance team, more or less. Yeah. Everyone knows what the CTO and the engineering team does, more or less. And, you know, there's very sales team and marketing teams, like they've got a certain set of activities that are widely understood. And people kind of understand what they should or shouldn't be doing. Product managers, they're kind of a bit more ambiguous because it's such an ambiguous role. And it's obviously a newer role. It's not necessarily as understood by people that have worked with good product management teams in the past. So yeah, it's, it's an issue. But again, all I can hope is that for a combination of trying to help persuade PMs that they should you know, go a little bit towards the middle as well, as well as trying to help advocate for the trade and the craft of PMs to non-PM people, yeah, we'll, we'll get there, hopefully. So, Jan, you wanted to ask a question? No, go, on. go on. I Well, I thought this was maybe a, a good moment just to get into what is a project manager for you, what a product manager, sorry, for you, and uh, how would you see the role? You mentioned line, the Lino method, I think, before. I, I hadn't heard of that. Is that yeah, correct? Look it up. It's on uh, Shreyas's uh, blog. You can probably look at L- LNO. I don't oh, know if it's pronounced Lino, okay. but LNO, leverage, okay. neutral, and overhead. 
So, so yeah, I mean, do, do, how would you uh, how would you distinguish these these roles? Because it is not so clear for for a lot of people. So how would I distinguish or how would I classify a product manager? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's... like what's the job description? If is there a generic well, job description? <laughs> well, the job descriptions for PMs are obviously generally quite tragic. Like you don't have to look too far on LinkedIn to see really bad product management job descriptions that have, you know, in some cases look like they've been kind of stitched together from two other job descriptions, or I guess these days written by ChatGPT. I guess if I, I mean, it's funny because I've asked people this kind of, this basic question, like define a product manager to someone who's not heard of it before on my podcast a bunch of times and, you know, get a variety of different quality of answers. And I'm now going to flounder and struggle to come up with a neat and, uh, <laughs> snappy one for myself but i think ultimately it's like if i want to have someone in my organization who is going to make sure that the company makes the best decisions for its users and helps the company helps the teams build the best experiences for those users in a way that works for the users uh, and works at a scale that supports the growth goals of the company then i want a product manager i want someone that's going to be in there in the middle of things taking in all of those inputs from all the way around the company and I want them to basically turn that into a successful product. I don't want them building the product. I don't want them necessarily designing the product. I don't want them saying that everything's going to be in the product. I want them to be sponges in the middle that have got their, they've got their opinion. Like we said earlier, they know where they want to go based on what they know from before, but they're sitting there in between everything and they're basically making good strategic decisions off of all of those inputs to make sure that, that product is as successful as possible. But I mean, surely owning the the value proposition in, in the, the company, so the owning the responsibility for the, the value proposition of the company is, is a super essential um, role. Yes. And I, I, I often myself, I'm a bit confused as to where there's, for example, the, the response, where do the responsibilities of the CEO stop mm -hmm. and, and the PM start? Because if you, if isn't in the end the, the person holding responsibility for the, the value proposition, the most important person in the company somehow? I mean, if you have no value proposition, you have no, no company, it seems to me. I think, you know, let's be fair and say that at the beginning uh, to, a, you know, in a small sort of early stage company up to probably series A, uh, maybe you know, even on to series B, like you, the CEO is going to have an outsized role in that. Like the CEO uh, is almost certainly going to be the person who had the initial vision and the idea about the problem to solve. And, you know, obviously the CEO does very much play the de facto head of product at the beginning of any company. And I think that's a good thing as well, by the way. I don't think that you should hire a PM when you're like two people in or something like that, like that's a, you, you probably don't need that level of rigor. You've got other problems to solve at that point. I guess when we're talking about product managers, like when do you need a product team or when do you need like a CPO or a head of product or VP of product? For me, it's as the company starts to scale and the level of decisions that need to be made to make that product successful become too much for one person to hold in his or her head whilst They're also doing all the other stuff that's involved with scaling and making sure that they build a good company culture and that the company's financially, you know, like it's in the same way like the the CEO obviously has a, a massive stake in the financial success of the company, but they still have a CFO to help them. They probably don't hire, hire a CFO on day two, but when there comes a point where there are too many decisions 
and there's too much to look after for that CEO to do that alongside everything else, they hire a CFO or they get a finance team in. For me, I see it very similar with product managers and VPs of product and heads of product. You know, the CEO, the leadership team still have a massive and incredibly important role in the direction of the company, what they want the you know, what they want that company to be and the strategic direction that that company takes. And I'm not going to sit there for a second and say that, for example, the CEO just becomes an irrelevance as soon as you get like a VP of product. Of course not. Like We've all got to realize that we're playing for a team and the CEO is the overall like leader of that of that company and team and it's it's them that well if they were the founder they had the original vision they're always going to have a stake in it obviously if you get your business ceo comes in at some point and sort of takes over as a more of a, uh, an operator then that becomes a bit different maybe they have vision maybe they don't that's a whole different discussion but for me the ceo and the, the leadership team are always incredibly important for the, strat- the strategic direction of the company and what they want that company to be where the VP of product or the CPO or whoever, where they come into it is like, well, how do we make this product as scalable and constantly improve it as best we can to make sure that we live up to that vision that has been put down by the leadership team, by the CEO, because there's a lot of work involved in that. And I don't want the CEO doing loads of customer interviews when the company's at like 500 people and trying to scale out into other countries or other markets and whatever, like they've got other stuff to do. So like you could argue, especially if you had like a, a technical CEO, that that CEO could be still going doing code reviews at that scale. But why would they? There's no point. Mm. There's, their, their time is better spent somewhere else. And I think that's the same thing So I, with, with product. I don't think that the CPO is all of a sudden like the only person, like the, the alpha and the omega for everything related to the product and that the CEO doesn't get a look in anymore. Of course not. That would be a ridiculous situation. But the CPO is there to ultimately help deliver the company's vision through product excellence, get all of the nuts and bolts stuff done, all of the tactical stuff, make sure that that happens, all of the operational stuff, make sure all that happens, and do their best to help craft a winning strategy that can execute through the team and support the goals of the company. That's probably the best description of those roles I think I've ever heard. And it, we do struggle, I think, to define product management. I, I've just got my notes from what you said. You began with it helps make decisions, create experiences, scales, it considers all inputs. And I want to go back to something. And also, when you said the CEO sets the vision, the product management makes that happen. I, I love that. I want to go back to something earlier in the conversation, building off this making decisions, where you said that, you know, a, attribute was being humble. I actually wrote a post recently about attributes of product management and managers. And two that I had two of those attributes, well, I'll just tell you all three. I'll, they were it was uh, being decisive, being humble, and being trustworthy. And as I'm writing the post, I got a little I started to confuse myself a second. I was, I was like, because I was thinking about wow, this being humble and being decisive, they almost it's a bit of yin and yang, but they're, they're sort of both true. But you, you sort of had to hold both of these. Um, I, I'm just going to ask, what's your response to that, having to be humble, but also being able to be decisive? I mean, I don't think that they're um, mutually exclusive. I mean, you know, you can make a decision based on the best information that you have at a particular time. Yeah, you know, for uh, wherever you got that information from, let's hope that that information has come from good places. But there's going to be a point where a decision has to be made. Like you should be comfortable making that decision. 
but you should also be comfortable and hopefully work for a company that is psychologically safe enough to allow this. You should be comfortable for that decision based on new information to be basically proved wrong. Now that's yeah. humility for me, not sitting there kind of with your you know white knuckles yeah. going down the roller right. coaster saying, right, well, we're we're basically in it for the duration and, and that's it. Like I was reading a story earlier about the uh, the old famous failure of the Ford Edsel, the old car that they made in the fifties, mm-hmm. which basically was a massive wash and, and you know, but you know, I mean it didn't do too much to the finance of the company, but it was definitely an embarrassment. And and how much they were, they kind of they were just locked in, and they were, and like the, no matter what information they got, they kind of just kept going for it. And then obviously they eventually got it out there, and it, it tanked, and then they eventually closed it all down again, and at the cost of two hundred and fifty million dollars or something like that, and that's in fifties money as well. I am not an expert in building cars, so don't get me wrong. I, I'm not going to sit there and say that I could easily have changed that in any way, shape, or form. I'm sure there are lots of things going on when you're making a car, and especially in the fifties as well. But in principle, anyone that can sit there and say, right, well, we've got compelling evidence that either X is more important or Y isn't working out the way that we thought it would and keep trying to do the thing that they were doing before, that's the opposite of you. That's, that's, that's hubris. That's, just, that's them sitting there saying that they know better than, than evidence that's come from the actual world that they live in. Now, if they can persuade someone that maybe that evidence that they're getting is maybe not statistically valid or that yeah there's some other explain some reason to explain it or something like that. well that's a different issue right but then that's additional information that they're bringing to the table but anyone mm. that can just sort of sit there and close their eyes and just you know just just throw darts and just keep going like that's that's the opposite of humility so for me humility doesn't mean you can't make a decision humility just means that you are prepared to revisit it if things happen that prove it to maybe not be ideal. But yeah, we also have to understand that there are a bunch of companies out there where probably making a couple of bad decisions is enough to tank your, your job because they're like, well, you know, we don't accept that people can make mistakes or we don't accept that people could be proved wrong. Every hit has to be a home run. So, well, cool. But how many baseball players hit a home run with every swing? Like, none of them. Like, I don't know what a good base is like. 33 percent of the of, of the hits is like a good ratio right like it's yeah it's not a perfect analogy again i'm great at imperfect analogies but the whole point is that anyone that's expecting everyone to be perfect every time i mean that's it's not going to happen they're going to be very disappointed yeah i, I, I just want to maybe to uh sorry can i oh, yeah, so, sorry, go ahead. well i was just i i i want to kind of get your perspective on it because sometimes i think i really like your emphasis on this um Humbleness in the sense of, well, I don't know everything and some things I need to find out and we just need to check kind of our assumptions. But there's sometimes also there are companies where the incentive is there for certain people. Well, they're paid to know they are experts. They should be experts, shouldn't they? So so I sometimes kind of we hit this wall when we we talk to where where we suddenly have people in the room say, well, I I don't need to talk to users. Why should I be? I know they don't know. They have no clue. And. Developers are just developing what I tell them to develop. So, I, so how do you kind of? I mean, how do you deal with? I don't know what the opposite of humbleness. Well, hubris kind of, <laughs> because there is, there is quite a high likelihood that there's people in the room, who at least think, they know, and they're experts. And so, yeah, I mean, 
this is the whole sort of subject matter expert debate. And especially in B2B, it's fairly common for companies to be set up by subject matter experts because, you know, yeah. you've worked in a space. And I guess the the problem that you see and you, it's kind of a almost like a, the the halo effect made flesh, right? This whole idea, like the cognitive bias that says that if someone's good at one thing, they're good at everything because they look so credible in that one thing. So like, for example, if you're a trying to think of somewhere where I've not worked, so I don't get, you know, make it look like I'm attacking someone like, but so like if you're an expert in warehouse fulfillment or something like that, like that was just the, that you, you've worked in that game for 30 years and now you want to start up a company to, to, to revolutionize warehouse fulfillment or actually one place that I sent a job interview or job a CV in for once and didn't even get an interview like a trying to reimagine the world of cement delivery or something like that like you know interesting yeah. prospect I had no idea what that would even be but like it was it's an interesting you know interesting company website but like you come from that industry you've lived and breathed that industry for decades you know the space and obviously, you know, way more, at least based on your past experience than any product manager that you kind of just get in from some marketplace or whatever that you know, just happens to apply for the job. And I would never for a second diminish the importance of the network that that's given those people, you know, the ability that they have to open doors to get and you know, probably yeah. many of their early customers are going to be from from people that they knew or people that they used to work with or the industry credibility that they have. And I'm not going to diminish that for one second. And we also have to call out that in some cases, these obvious ideas that these subject matter experts come up with are possibly even quite good ideas. And some things actually are more obvious than others. I'm not going to sit there and say that we should always build what they say, but sometimes they do have good ideas that are unambiguously good. You still need to apply critical thinking to it but you shouldn't just throw them away because someone said them that wasn't a user. Sometimes it's easier to test something by building a little thing to test that or you know, speaking yeah. to users directly about that rather than just going out and trying to come up with ideas from the ether all the time. The way it becomes problematic is, of course, when that's the only source of input or when it's just them and the sales team because what you're then relying on is they're slowly diminishing industry expertise in the sense that they're not working directly in that industry you're still talking to a bunch of people in it so like you again shouldn't ignore them but they're not on the you know they're not on the the front line anymore but they don't work in that job anymore they don't do that they, they work for your company so everything is starting to be colored by kind of a sort of sunk cost bias of the stuff that you've already built within your company and just how it used to be but maybe isn't anymore so you need to push back against this idea that of course subject matter experts are always going to want to show that they're experts but you need to kind of respectfully push back and and try and challenge that and say well yeah sure like that sounds like that might be true but let's go and check like we can check really easily so let's go and check that if it's true then we'll find out very quickly and we'll carry on but not just to just do it but also not to shoot it down like you need to be able to work with these people and they do have credibility yeah. And they do have something to bring to the table. The problem is, of course, that if you're not able through institutional problems, you know, company culture problems, just the way the company works, like if you're unable to get out in front of customers because you're being explicitly blocked from doing it, then obviously you start to not be in a position where you can actually come back with that kind of counterpoint or evidence or prove or disprove yeah. what they've done or what they've said. 
Now, obviously, you still have the ability to, for example, use usage data to say, okay, well, actually, you said this thing, no one's using it. Like, no one's using it at all. Like, obviously, it'd be great or be better to, to know that beforehand, but at least if you know it afterwards, you can start to maybe start thinking, well, can we go and speak to people and find out what, you know, I've, I was speaking to someone recently who was like, yeah, we put this new beta version of a thing out and we released it to a handful of customers. No one's using it. So, well, great. We should probably go talk to those customers then. Like, of course, because otherwise we're never going to know. Like, you you can't yeah. know. And, yeah, the people, like the subject matter experts in these situations that maybe thought that was a good idea, it needs to be okay for them to be wrong as well. But ideally, what you want to get into a situation is that where ideally you can respectfully challenge them up front to at least let you go and check uh, or, you know, crank out a, a prototype or something. So, okay, right, we do think that's a good idea. We've cranked out this prototype just so we can show a couple of people so that we can be super sure that this that the way that we think that we should build that is a good idea. And obviously, you get a chance then to ask a few questions around it as well. But ultimately, yeah. if you can't do any of those things up front, again, maybe you're going to get a better job somewhere else or you maybe at least rely on the fact that you can try and do some post hoc analysis and say, cool, like we, we, we took a bet. Wasn't a good idea as it turns out, because no one's using it. Is it, are they not using it because it's not a good idea or are they using it because we've implemented it badly or whatever? Like we, we need to check and, you know, you need to be open to the fact that maybe you didn't do a good job either, but so much of this comes down to being in a company where you can actually tell people that what, whatever it is that they did or think or whatever didn't quite work out. And that's incredibly challenging in a number of companies. It's like that, yeah, you, one thing that I call out sometimes is the fact that product managers can often get seen as these kind of unnecessary devil's advocates sitting in the corner <laughs> or, you know, they're sort of seen as just negative, like, you know, the doubting Thomases, the people <laughs> that just sit there and shoot down every idea because they think that it's done. And, you know, that can happen. I'm not going to say that that hasn't happened to me in the past where maybe I've been a little too on the wrong side of you know, whether we should try something or not. However, it doesn't mean that we're always wrong. So I think it's important to work constructively with your colleagues and try and find ways to de-risk decisions as quickly as you can, either by pushing back on these experts before you try and build something, trying to build the smallest thing that you can to prove whether or not it works, and at the very least being super clear on what the success metrics would be like for that. I remember talking to John Cutler once on the podcast about, because yeah, he coined this feature factory term in the first place. And I said, well, we you know, what do you do if you're given a feature just you know, and told just to build that? And his advice, which I still remember from time to time, is like, well, look, whatever happens, like even if you end up having to build that, try and work back to what you would have, uh, the question you would have asked that that would be the answer to even if you still have to build it, like work backwards and also start to think, well, what would need to be done to make this successful? What would we need to know to know that this was, that this was successful? And then measure that. And then you can at least go back to it afterwards with your kind of, again, sort of post-rationalized idea of what that would have looked like if you'd have done your product work properly. And you can at least still have some idea about whether it succeeded or not. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I mean, it's it's like sometimes these features, like somebody suggests it and the thing, this idea just gathers momentum and everybody gets excited about this one way to do something. And maybe it's the CEO's idea and, and maybe one customer sort of said something about it. And then 
the I can see where the product manager could get the reputation as, oh, there's the devil's advocate. But that's the person that's asking the question, wonderful. There's one way to solve the problem. Hello, are there is there other other things we should consider before we just go do it? And you can I can certainly see how you can be perceived as standing in the way of of progress when when you're really I think that that conversation with John Cutler you said I think that's that's the perfect I, I couldn't improve on that essentially what's the what's the root problem that this feature solves and is there a little space for other to explore other ways before we get too far I mean, that's that's a pretty innocent question I think are there other can we explore some let's take it for granted that anybody cares about that problem is what which that could be another question but if we take that as a given just can we take a little bit of time just to explore some other solutions? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the thing, like there's this other kind of idea and this is, you know, kind of goes more into your sort of Teresa Torres type continuous discovery mm, yeah. idea, which is like, yeah. if you're in a situation where every single kind of validation or check or test that you want to do is this big project that you have to do mm -hmm. before you start something, then it automatically starts to sound like it's going to slow everything down. Whereas if you're continuously doing this stuff, continuously talking to your users and your customers, then you know you can a slip some of this stuff in anyway, and you can be asking them stuff that you want to know as part of your sort of day to day or week to week business. Um, but also, it just means that that it's just always happening. You're not you're not in a situation where you have to hey hey everyone everyone stop. I need to wait three weeks now for, to go and find out who we should ask about this stuff and then come up with some questions and then go and speak to them and then come back and write a report and then blah, and then blah, and then blah. It's like, no, the problem that I see often with regards to research is like it's seen as a blocker or barrier to getting yeah. stuff done. And there's not a single CEO out there that wants stuff to be done slower. They all want stuff to be done quicker uh, because they're worrying about burn rates and they're worried about uh, runways and they're, and they're worried about growth and they're worried about all of the things that they're worried about as CEOs and often CEOs will sit there and say well back in the old days this used to be just quicker like we used to get stuff done quicker now obviously there are a number of reasons why that might have slowed down but what you don't want to be seen as it you, know, you don't want to be seen as the team that slows everything down you need to be seen as the team that is trying to help you make good decisions and a team that's trying to actually speed you up by making sure that you're only working on stuff that's important and you're only working on enough of that stuff that you're not building some, you know, amazing crystal solution when they don't really need something that, that no shiny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's an incredibly important comment, I think. Uh, um, you know, be the, the people that are helping out, not slowing down the, the process. Yep. Um, I wondered if I could maybe change gear uh, slightly and and talk about I, I mean as you come from development i wondered if if there was there were any stories that you had um relating to the importance of project management in your in your experience and and where you kind of had it clicked that oh that's actually important and secondly and maybe more interestingly for me is what was the first let's say light bulb that was something that you had not learned in your development uh, let's say career and training that you kind of got from project management and that just went oh that's you know that's a really interesting idea and, and a new way of seeing things that i 
I hadn't thought of. I mean, if if you have any of these uh, light bulb moments, I, I don't know if if that's something that you actually had, but if you had some. Yeah, so I'm thinking, trying to think off the top of my head. I mean, one example that I sometimes use, and it's not an amazing example, but it's it's kind of, um, it reminds, it just kind of reminds me of some of this kind of, the sort of bias to technical action, which isn't always the right answer. So I remember working for one company and they, we had a, a comment from a, from a customer saying you know, it's a data product. There's lots of data that we kind of ex- put out onto the screen and they could kind of navigate through that data and such to kind of look around. But, you know, it wasn't like a fully featured BI tool. It was just a fairly simple table with some stuff in. And we got a, an email from a customer saying that, well, basically once a month, which is when we did like the big refreshes, the we get an intern to basically go through every single page of that uh, table because it was like 50 odd pages of, of like data going down to the most smallest items. And they're basically pasting this out into Excel because we need to have like some PowerPoint report or we need to get some number or something like that to, uh, you know, to, to do something that, that's important to our business. Now, I looked at it as, you know, as a kind of a, as a problem to solve. I'm like, well, obviously the easiest thing for us to do from a technical perspective is just to put some kind of CSV export onto the page and just dump the, the whole table down, save themselves hours and, you know, solve whatever problem it was. was. And, you know, to be honest, I'm still a big fan of putting CSV exports into any B2B app as one of your first things. I think it's really important and it saves you a lot of heartache when you're not being asked to build stuff because they can just go and do it themselves. Yeah. And, yeah, let's not, you know, let's not hide from the fact that even just building that CSV export was still a massive win and saved a lot of time for the customers. However, did that help the customers in the best way? And did it help our business in the best way? Because actually what we're doing is we're immediately throwing them back out the platform to do their stuff somewhere else. Was there more stuff that we could have done in the platform to help solve whatever use case they were trying to solve with this report that would keep them in the platform, maybe make them use it more? And also, like, why did they even need to do that in the first place? Like, what was the use case that they were really Mm -hmm. trying to, what were they trying to solve? What was the job they were doing, you know, in jobs to be done uh, kind of framing? And and I guess I don't regret it so much because, you know, we, again, we sort of solved a problem and it, and it and it kept people happy. But it kind of made me feel, I, I didn't feel like I'd, I, it felt like I'd approached that from a very much an engineering standpoint. All I'd done is say, oh, there's a problem. There's a nail. Here's a hammer. Smash the, you know, we put the nail in. Let's move on. Whereas maybe there was something else that we should have explored there. And that would have been better product management work. However, yeah, you could also argue maybe we should have done both. Like maybe putting the CSV export in, but then having follow-ups. Yeah, maybe the CSV CSV export was the good MVP. But what we did was, as happens in many cases, we just then moved on to the next thing. We never went back and thought, why do people need to get this data out in the first place? And how could we make it better for them? Like what, what functionality could we add in to make this platform more delightful for them or was that enough but we yeah so kind of just attacked it as a technical challenge and then and then moved on and again not really a regret but just something that i reflect on from time to time yeah it's a quick fix that becomes an integral part to suddenly yeah. of the product which, and, but, yeah but that, the problem is that you get with a lot of b2b apps is that they're basically made of quick fixes 
Yeah, like you, yeah. You, and like the like, there's maybe like a core that was okay, but then everything else is just all quick fixes. And then you pile quick on. fixes on. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And that's where good product management could or should come in, where you can sit there and say, okay, fine. Yeah, sure, we could add five hundred buttons to the page, and and making it look like one of those ridiculous old sort of Excel toolbars of all of the different lines, and bars, and options and buttons. But like, how can we make this actually good? rather than just continuing to la- just layer on more and more stuff because people ask for individual bits and bobs. Like yeah. maybe some of these buttons even do the same thing. Who even knows anymore? So that's where it starts to get a bit tricky. And when you start to think, well, some proper, you know, basically proper product management could probably help with that. Yeah. Well, excellent. We're sort of getting to- closer to the end of our time here. Just, just two sort of b- very broad questions. Just, um, Imagine we're, you're going to talk to a CEO. Their organization is sort of, you know, does not have great product. By the way, just circle back to one point earlier. I thought that was really interesting when you said a couple of reasons that product management uh, might have trouble gaining traction. One, you said the company might have a great moat. They might have, they might not be dependent on the great skills for a product manager, which could sort of, which sort of hides, conceals the need because it's a, you know, they're working on stuff for the future and the present's great. Like, I don't know. Now it's probably different, but say Google in 2007 was probably doing fine. There's a there's an agriculture example uh, I know about where a company has 90 percent market share. Uh, I don't I don't really want to hear from that product manager what they did because this company's had 90 percent market share. for hundred <laughs> years, Right. So so that's one. And the other one is, is probably understood. But I think you addressed that pretty well. But anyway, with that sort of backdrop, if you're going to talk to a CEO and they've you know they've got pretty poor product management. What's some what's some advice you give them as to how to turn things around? Well, I mean, first of all, it's about identifying what the actual impact of that poor product management in air quotes is. Like, it, if everything's going fine, I, you know, and we let's assume that it isn't. Otherwise, probably won't be talking to them. But if everything's going fine, then you know, pick a more important problem to fix. Like that's you know the very heart of product management and you know lean thinking and all of that stuff. Like I don't want them fixing something that isn't. If there's other stuff to fix, they should fix that first. However, if it is one of the biggest problems and they are calling it out, then what impact is that having? I want to go into it with them and say, well, like what are the actual effects? Is it that you're not getting stuff out to market quickly enough? Is it that you're products ux is you know all over the place and customers are complaining are there, are there too many bugs are, you know, is, is to, to the earlier point is there really poor kind of enablement material that means that we don't really have a good value proposition that we can take out to market like what's the actual symptom and try and work out what pain it's causing them and you know, in some cases even just try and put some kind of you know numeric value on that pain like how much is this costing your business because those are the problems that people want to solve. Now, with regards to fixing it, I mean, that's that's an interesting point, right? Because ultimately, it's very difficult to fix all of that stuff in a day. So let's imagine you're walking into a company with maybe a generally poor product development culture where the engineers and the product people aren't talking together or talking to each other. Uh, maybe there's a, kind of a really heavy requirements culture where everything just has to be kind of written perfectly and handed over kind of more waterfally. Maybe there's kind of poor coding practices, which are that mean that there's lots of bugs or, you know, just there's all these different things that can happen within the kind of what we might call a product trio, like the developers, the designers and the product managers. And 
you're not going to be able to just click your fingers and fix all of those. You may even face resistance from certain parts of that trio. Like you, know, you may face resistance from the head of engineering or resistance from the head of product or resistance from whomever. So then it's about, well, how can we get those people to acknowledge, not necessarily a solution, but how can we get those people to acknowledge that the problem is a problem? Because if you can't get them to acknowledge it as a problem, then they're going to have zero interest in fixing it. If you can get them to acknowledge it's a problem, then you can try and work with them to get a shared understanding about all of the different, like, well, how would they solve that problem? And like, let's assume that they believe that's a problem. How would you solve it then, head of engineering? And maybe they have some ideas and maybe they don't. And I want to hear those ideas. I don't want to just sit there and say, well, actually, you should do it like this because that's what the Agile Manifesto says. Like, yeah, sure, maybe. But like, that's not a good enough reason. Like, they, we need to realize that, you know, the best changes come from within. So, and by that, I mean that you need to get them to kind of co-own the change with you. You can't, well, you can go in and just say, do this. And they might even do it, but they're going to do it under protest. They're not necessarily going to believe in it. And they'll probably do the bare minimum because they don't think that it's actually going to work. So I think trying to get them to co-own the problem, like the teams that are actually, to some extent, contributing to the problem, getting them to, to co-own it and kind of almost get them to come on a journey with you to say, right, we believe now, actually, that this thing that you said, because of the way that you said it, and like maybe some of the examples you gave or some things that we tried, that this this helped. Like This helped us get a bit better than we were before. Now, the problem is this takes time. And obviously, as we said earlier, startups aren't always known for having a lot of time. So you do have to try and apply as much pressure as possible whilst being conscious of the fact that if you apply too much pressure, you probably have the neg- you know, the opposite effect of what you want because people will start pushing back. So you need to be as you know, collaborative as possible. You need to get the teams to co-own the problems and you need to make sure that you're really prioritizing the most important problems rather than getting caught in ideological battles about whether they do two-week sprints or three-week sprints or whatever. Like, that's probably not the biggest, most important problem. Like, what's the most important problem? Let's fix yeah. that. It's uh, fantastic advice. Get, agree on the problem, find something measurable. And I like your phrasing of get them to come on a journey with you, mm-hmm. which means we're coming, we're going together. We're coming together. Yes. You might be sort of leading and opening the door, facilitating it, but it's not like I'm, I think that gets back. I think that is that heart of that yin and yang between decisive and humility. It's like, you're not, I'm not saying go this way. I'm saying, Hey, here's some information. You know, you're just sort of, facil- where should we go? And then you sort of yeah. help. What dev, what evidence do we have for this or that? I, I think that's, I think that's a common situation. This uh, organizations that need to elevate their product management uh, chops. I, that's fantastic advice. What's, yeah, what's but the problem about, is though, yeah. when you talk to like a CEO and you say, "I want to elevate your product management," or "I want to make sure that you're doing better product," product like yeah. a lot of CEOs be like, "Well, what the hell does that mean?" Right. Like because <laughs> yeah, right. because why would they know? And I remember right. I was chatting to a guy right. recently. Uh, who is or was a contributor to the SAFE framework. Now, SAFE obviously has mixed reputation in the kind of agile and the product communities, but at the same time, he puts out a very good case, from his perspective at least, as to why things like that are important. And I even somewhat agree, at least conceptually, that CEOs and CFOs and see anything O's that aren't on the kind of the, the product side of the house, haven't come for that kind of pro- Why do they care about any of this stuff? They don't. They they care about the results for sure. But do they care if we're doing the design sprint versus a 
story mapping workshop versus using an opportunity solution tree versus everything's in a Gantt chart. They they just want results. And I'm not going to say that they should be completely yeah, unconscious of the uh, the way that we get them, but like they're not methodologists. They're, they're there to, they're, they want the business to be successful and it's up to us as, as product people and obviously me as a consultant to basically persuade them, not that I'm trying to be a kind of ideological crusader for the perfect product process, but that ultimately what we're looking to do is put things in place to help make their company more successful. You know, it, it's so, there's, a, there's a lot of consistency in what you're saying because you described this, this process of facili- what you would advise facilitating, bring them along the journey. And then that's exactly what you do in your consulting business as you just des- <laughs> just described it. So you're it's almost like it's an advert or something. <laughs> well, tell us just a little bit as we're sort of getting to the end. Tell us a little bit about a, a one night consulting and what you help companies to do. Yeah, I mean, basically kind of just what we were just talking about, really. I mean, I... My all my experience is B2B. So I'm working with you know, I've worked with B2B companies. I'm working with B2B companies now, doing some fractional product leadership work, doing some coaching, either group coaching or individual coaching. So kind of a mixture of the two. So the, the consulting is very much around what look, there's a there's a team with a problem and we need to fix that problem. Like whatever that problem yeah. is, if it's a if it's a skills problem, a coach, like if, if they need to be coached in certain areas to make them more effective at certain things, or if they're kind of strategy or go to market problems, like, and, and often, you know, what you're seeing companies is, you know, they'll have problems with silos and, you know, ways of working and stuff like that. So like, it's easy for me to sort of sound wishy-washy and say that, you know, just go in and try and make people work together better. <laughs> but I think that's at the heart of a lot of this stuff. Like we yeah. need to make people work together better. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of what I try to do from consulting and a coaching perspective is go in, try and identify to the earlier point, big pain points, things that are holding the company back, things that are making it hard for them to scale or hard for them to succeed, and just try and help them fix them. And, you know, you need you need movement from both sides on that. Like you can't just, uh, to the earlier point, again, you can't just sit there and say, do this, and then they don't do it. Like, you, know, you, you need to have some give or take. But I think it's all about just trying to help companies be more successful, hopefully through product excellence, but never in those terms, because again, product excellence doesn't mean anything to people that aren't product people. Right. Makes total sense. Well, Jason, we're getting closer to the end of our time here. Anything else you'd like to let folks know about? Well, I mean, I could talk all day, but uh, (laughs) no, I mean, obviously I'm happy for people to connect with me after this. I'm always happy to chat about product people, put a lot of content out on my Twitter and my LinkedIn. And if I'm okay to advertise other other podcasts, then, yeah, feel free to come and listen to that as well. I'm very accessible and always happy to chat. Awesome. Thanks so much. So you can find Jason on Twitter at one Jason Knight. He's the host of the podcast One Night in Product. You can find him on LinkedIn as Jason Knight or on his website, which is one nightconsulting.com. There you right. go. We're really, really hammering down that night pun as best I can. <laughs> I see you can I see you It's a great name. <laughs> one very one final sort of not very uh important question but just as we're going to the end let's say we're gonna have a we're, we're gonna have a big product camp on saturday a bunch of product managers get together but as part of our festivities you're gonna have us to watch a movie together that we maybe we learn something maybe we don't it's your choice what what movie are we gonna watch as a group 
Ooh. Well, so just to clarify, does this have to be like an educational movie or just a good movie? You're in charge, man. Yeah, you don't have to take us along for the journey. You just get to decide. <laughs> well, that's an interesting one, obviously, given the, the movie memes that I do on uh, LinkedIn <laughs> as well. I would say that you should watch Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, uh, because it's a, one of the best sci-fi movies ever and uh, fine performance uh, fine performance from everyone in it so definitely one of my favorite films either that or gattaca if i can choose one or the other oh, if you don't that's a great one if you don't want to go for the the spaceship shooting each other then gattaca again one of my favorite films oh, excellent excellent yeah. all right well i look forward to that conference jason though. yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> I'll, I'll bring the dvds if i still got them <laughs> well fantastic well I love to con to connect with product management experts like Jason, business leaders out there. I believe it's I personally believe it's the most important role role for your growth and profitability. And Jason, yes, you are an expert in my estimation, despite, <laughs> despite your humility there. But hey, man, seriously, appreciate you taking some time out for us, and uh, look forward to being in touch. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that, friends, concludes today's Product Quest podcast. Follow us on LinkedIn or reach out to us anytime at productquestpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. Oh, he, makes it into, he makes it international. So that's right. That's right. I, from my perspective, you guys make it international. <laughs> exactly. Well, fine.